All right, today we're in week four of our series, The Walk, which is a series through the book of 1 John. So if you have a Bible near you, uh, if you have your neighbor's Bible, grab theirs out of their hands and, uh, or get on a device and go to 1 John chapter 2, and we'll be in verses 12 through 17. And I'd encourage that if you missed a week to catch up online, because really I don't want you to miss anything. Uh, it's, it's only a five-chapter book, uh, a five-chapter long book. We're spending 11 weeks in it, and I don't want you to miss any sort of life change uh, potential by missing a message uh, throughout the series. In the verses we'll look at today, John will be uh, calling us to examine our hearts, to examine our walk, if you will, to determine, okay, am I, am I walking as Jesus walked? Am I walking toward Jesus and the things of God, or am I walking to live and please myself? John's going to get a little poetic in these first few verses, 12 through 14, and in here he'll be reminding us of our identity in Christ. I don't know about you, but I need to be reminded. I can get up from my desk and walk across the building. I can walk across the office, for that matter, and forget why I got up from my desk in the first place. I have to use reminders on my phone all the time to make sure I don't forget something important. Um, here we'll get some reminders of spiritual realities of, for those who are in Christ, of our identity in Christ. Keep in mind the context of these verses thus far in 1 John. Uh, thus far, we've talked about if we, if we claim to know God, then... We're walking in the light and not in darkness. We're loving our brothers and sisters, and we're not hating them or being indifferent to them, but we're loving them. We're not acting as if we're without sin, but when we do sin, we're running to the one who atoned or paid for our sin. We're obeying God's commands and not neglecting or ignoring them. We're walking and living as, as Jesus walked and lived. We're growing. We're making progress in our walk with Christ. If we're doing those things, we can be assured that God is at work in our lives, and we know we are following him as Lord and Savior. Out of that knowledge, then, John wants to remind us, here's what we know about our position with Christ. Because remember, to follow God is not outward to inward. It's not cleaning up the outside where our hearts still are, are rebellious or proud or, or just kind of indifferent to the things of God. Instead, gospel changes always inward to outward. This is what we see in baptisms. Baptism doesn't save you. The water doesn't cleanse you. The water doesn't take away the sin. It's the blood of Christ that does that. Baptism is simply the outward expression of what's happened inwardly in someone's heart. The first step as a Christ follower, that first step is salvation. It's surrender. It's to agree with God, repent and believe on Jesus as your Lord and Savior, to confess that He is Lord and Savior. And at that point, our identity is not, not in our past sin, who we've always been or who people have always thought we, we are, but rather our identity is in is a new creation in Christ. We've been made new. Our hearts are now a heart of flesh and not stone. We've crossed over from death to life, and out of that new inward identity flows an outward identity that looks different. It stands out in the world. It, 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 it's like a city on a hill. It's, it's like salt and light in this world. Said another way, out of identity flows activity. Out of our identity flows our activity. For example, I'm a husband to my wife, Heather. That's been a part of my identity for over 18 years. So out of that identity flows my activity. Therefore, I consider her needs before my own. I'm looking for ways to love her in sacrificial ways. I'm praying for her. I'm listening to her. My way of life looks different because of my identity as a husband. Same goes for my identity as a father. Out of my role or identity as a father flows my activity, or at least it should. 
It should impact how I pray, what I do in private, how I choose to use my free time, how I manage our family calendar and carve out time for just our family. Out of our identity flows our activity. So John keeps saying in this book, listen, if you claim to know God, if you're claiming to follow Him, if, you're, if that's your identity, then it should change what you do. It should change what you believe. It should change what you think. And today we'll look at it, it should change what you want. This is what John goes after in these verses. So who we are will determine what we want. Who we are will determine what we want. Who am I? Well, I'm a husband. So I want to honor and love my wife. Among other things, who am I? I'm a father. And so I want to lead my children in the ways of God through my way of life and through my words. Who am I? Well, I'm first and foremost a Christ follower, so that will determine what I want. I want to honor God. I want to serve Him. I want to know Him. I want others to know Him. I want to, uh, to be used of Him. I want to glorify Him. It will change what I want. And in verses 15 through 17, John will go after the what we want. But in verses 12 through 14, we first have to talk about who we are, our identity, these inner realities for those who are in Christ. So let's read these three verses, and then we'll look at them. Verse 12 in chapter 2, I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for His name's sake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know Him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know Him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the Word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Now, some will say these verses relate to uh, three stages of spiritual growth, children, young men, and, and fathers. But that's not necessarily what's happening here. John refers to the readers uh, in this book of 1 John, he refers to the readers as little children or children nine times. So if it's figurative in the rest of the book, it stands to reason it, it is here as well. John isn't necessarily leading Sun Chaser's kids' ministry here. When, when he addresses the readers as children, it refers to his attitude toward the readers, this great affection he has for the leaders and his leadership, or for the children, and his leadership role over these people's lives. Another thought, when he mentions fathers there, believers are also referred to as fathers in 1 Timothy 5.1, and in light of how the Greek word is used there, we see that by father he refers to those who are relatively advanced in years. We won't point fingers this morning, but a.k.a. older people. He's addressing people who are more advanced in years who know Jesus. He mentions young men twice. The same Greek word uh, referring to young men shows up nine times in the gospel. It shows up in the book of Acts. And in those times, it refers to people of fewer years. We won't point fingers, but these people tend to sit toward the front of the living room, and they are a.k.a. younger people. So this is an all-encompassing message to children, meaning these are the people who, who John loves and cares for, and to older and younger people. John also uses here a present perfect tense verbs. Now some of you, like bile kind of um, came up in your throat a little bit. You're like, I, I left middle school a while ago. I didn't know I had to worry about parts of speech. Um, I had to Google this to figure out what it is because, once again, when you get out of middle school, you just you care less and less about parts of speech and, and grammatical sentence, like structure. You just learn to write. And um, so that's where I'm at as an adult. Um, that's where I'm at as a father sometimes too. But the, uh, the teachers in the room, the lovers of grammar, will know what these are. Present perfect tense verbs are where an action is completed with respect to the present. 
So past perfect would be, I had seen it. Present perfect would be, I have seen it. I not only saw it at one point, but I also see it now. It's something that happened once but has ongoing consequences or results. So when John says, for example, you have overcome the evil one, he's saying these things happened at one point in your life, but they have ongoing impact. When you gave your life to Jesus, you overcame the evil one, and yet that gospel reality has ongoing impact in your life. It's true today just as it was when it first happened when you gave your life to Christ. So this is not necessarily referring to the three stages of spiritual growth and maturity, although spiritual growth is most definitely a theme throughout Scripture. Instead, John is referring to to parts of our identity that we have received at one point because of him, and these, these realities have an ongoing impact in our present day 2014, will be 2015 lives. Young, old, all those in Christ, it applies to us. The first part of our identity he calls our attention to, verse 12, I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. As Christians, our sins are forgiven, past, present, and future. John wants to remind us of that, and many of us today need to be reminded of this truth in our lives. Psalm 103.3 tells us that if we know Christ, we've been forgiven of all sin. Not, not some of it, not not the, not the easy ones, like, oh, that was an easy one for Jesus to die for, and that was really small, and no, healed of all sin. We've been set free from all sin. This is what Psalm 103.3 tells us. And then in verses 8 through 12 in Psalm 103, the writer continues to remind us of this. He says, The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. If you know Christ, if Jesus is your Lord and Savior, God is no longer harboring his wrath toward you. He's not treating you as your sins deserve. He's not repaying us for what we've done wrong. He is compassionate, gracious, abounding in love. Our sins, our transgressions, how we rebelled, how we disregarded, disobeyed, all of our sin has been removed from us, separated as far as the east is from the west. It no longer has a hold on your life. You're no longer enslaved to it. It no longer has to dominate who you are or plague your life. Why? Because 1 John 2.12 tells us your sins are forgiven for His name's sake. They are forgiven because of the name of Christ. My, my forgiveness, praise God, is not based upon me. It's based upon Him. We are forgiven because of what He, is not, what he has done, not because of what we have done. God is no longer treating us as our sins deserve because, because we're awesome or because we're really obeying that well, but because Jesus died in our place. He was the sacrifice for our sin. He was punished for our peace. And when we give our lives to Christ, when we repent and believe, this, this great exchange happens. Jesus takes on all, on all our guilt, our shame, our sin, our condemnation. He takes it all upon himself. He bears the weight of that. He bore the weight of that. And in exchange, we are given the righteousness of Christ. So now God not, doesn't see us in our shame and sin, but in the righteousness, the holiness, the purity of a son. Some of you, some of us have this particular sin that haunts us. 
It's re- it rears its head at different times. It crouches at your doorstep. And in your mind, sometimes you're incorrectly thinking, I don't know if I could do enough good to make this right. Now I've really blown it. I've really messed up. And I'm not sure if I could do enough good to resolve or make up for what I have done. Listen to me. God is not basing His forgiveness of you upon how sorry you are for your sin. Well, you're not weeping enough, so I guess you're not forgiven. Yes, our sin, don't misunderstand me, our sin should break us. I'm not saying it should not. It should lead to godly sorrow. This is 2 Corinthians 7. It should lead to godly sorrow, which leads to repentance. Forgiveness is not cheap. Grace is not cheap. Look at the cross. We know that. Yes, there are earthly consequences to our sin. I've experienced those. You have as well. But God is not determining His forgiveness of you based upon anything to do with you. It has already been done. We're we're forgiven completely when we trust in Christ as our Lord and Savior. We are then freed up to not live under the weight of condemnation, but instead live in the freedom that comes in having your sins forgiven and based upon His name's sake. Forgiveness on account of His name. God forgives our sins because of Jesus Christ, the one whom He sent as the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Little children, you are loved and you are forgiven. This is part of who we are now in Christ. We all need to know that today. Some of you especially need to know that the forgiveness offered at the cross and through the cross is not just theory. It doesn't just apply to the person down the street. It doesn't just apply to them. It applies to your heart. That gospel reality is true for them and for you. Some of you here listening on the podcast, you haven't experienced this. You're still trying to do enough good to outweigh the bad as if there's this kind of this giant heavenly scale that you're trying to tip slowly over time into your favor with good works. Listen, we're forgiven upon His name's sake only because of Jesus. This is one of a million other reasons why we say because of that, we'll serve and live for you, Christ, while here on this earth. Because you were willing to lay down your life when we were most unlovable. Do you know this kind of forgiveness? If not, then talk to a leader, talk to myself, talk to Eric, some other person around here before you leave. We'd love to listen and talk. Crosspoint, do you know who you are? That if you're in Christ, you are forgiven. We also see here part of our identity in Christ is that we have overcome the evil one. We see it twice. Young men, you are strong and you have overcome the evil one. Again, a present perfect tense verb. You overcame the evil one, the devil, when you gave your life to Christ, and you daily are still overcoming it. As Romans 8 tells us that in Christ you are more than a conqueror. Again, not because we are strong, but because He is strong. Because He who is in you is greater than He who is in the world, meaning the evil one, the devil. We are strong not because we are born strong, but because, as verse 14 reminds us, The Word of God abides in you. The Word of God abides in you. If you look at Matthew 4 and the temptations of Jesus, you see He refuted the lies of the enemy, not with skill or quick wit or by running away, but He refuted the lies with the truth from God's Word. He simply quoted Scripture when given temptation. The concept is what we talked about during Trump Card in in September, the the series that we did, the, the truth that Scripture trumps Whatever lies the world would give us, our flesh would give us, our minds would stir up. The Bible tells us we're actually strong in our weakness, which sounds like a great oxymoron. But listen, what, what, to, what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 
But he said to me, Jesus said to Paul, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness so that Christ's power may rest on me. We are strong in our weakness because in our weakness, we are fully aware that we must be dependent upon God's strength. I have found in my own life that when I'm beginning to rest in my own strength, you ever had these moments where you just kind of get exposed about you're resting in your own wisdom, you're resting in your own strength? Well, I have found that God lovingly exposes that because he loves me. Because he wants to remind me, no, 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 Dave, it's not about you. It's not about your strength. It's not about your wisdom. It's about being dependent upon me. It's about running to the fortress, the stronghold, the rock. And that's not you. It's me. You are strong. You have overcome the evil one because the word of God abides in you. The word of God that demolishes strongholds in our minds. If you're in Christ, 1 John wants to remind you that you're not defeated. You're not enslaved anymore. You're not chained up. Why? Because Jesus is victorious and he is strong. If you belong to Jesus, you are strong. The devil and his schemes have no place of authority in your life. We overcome because Jesus has overcome. We overcome the evil one because they are strong and they are strong because the word of God lives in them. So what's one practical way we can allow the word of God, the Bible, the words of the Bible to abide in us? What's to memorize scripture? And maybe that seems like throwback to when you were in some kid's ministry back in the day or something like that, but that's the reality of it, is taking the Word of God and abiding in it, allowing, uh, thinking on it throughout the day, hiding it in our hearts, if you will. Every week in our program insert, we've got a verse to, that kind of captures what, this, what the message is about. I'd encourage you to put that on a three-by-five this week. If you're in a household, if you're with roommates, if you're with friends, your community group, your kids, your spouses, Put that in a three-by-five, get it in front of you, and memorize Scripture. I have been amazed when I've been disciplined about doing that. And unfortunately, I'm not uh, always there. But when I've been disciplined about it, God just brings that verse to mind in the midst of conversation. Like, oh, shoot, I memorized that three weeks ago, and there it is. Whether it's in a conversation or a temptation that you're facing or so, whatever. Just trust God and His providence of that. Do your part in abiding in it hiding it in your heart. Part of our identity in Christ is that we're forgiven on account of his name. We overcome the evil one because our Savior and Lord has defeated the enemy. And the next one, verse 13 says, I'm writing to you fathers because you know him who's from the beginning. If we're in Christ, we know him who is from the beginning, meaning we know Jesus, the king of the universe. Even though Jesus is Alpha and the Omega, meaning he always has been, always will be, he's not captured, he's not uh, uh, held in by time, John, John is not referring here to the beginning of time. Instead, he's referring to when the Word became flesh, when God became a man, took on flesh, and dwelt among us. Our faith is not in some far-off mystical being, but in the God-man, Jesus Christ, the one who was born of a virgin, lived a perfect, sinless life, died for our sins on the cross, rose again on the third day, and now sits at the right hand of God the Father, and one day is returning. This is what we sing about, right? Finally, John tells us that in, at the end of verse 13, one final piece of who we are in Christ, I write to you children because you know the Father. When we're saved and begin to follow Jesus as Lord and Savior, we're adopted into the family of God. God is now not just creator and judge, but we relate to him as Father now. A perfect, loving, strong, wise, always there for you, never walking out on you, never walking out on you, never losing sight of you, Father. 
If you're a parent, or you will be someday, the most incredible thing happens when your child is born or your child is adopted. It's like your heart expands a thousand times. When Eli, our second, was born, it didn't mean we, we loved Maddie, our firstborn, less. Instead, our capacity to love just, just blew up and got bigger. And you're thinking, how could I love this person as much as the first person? And it just keeps growing. And the love we have for our children, it pales in comparison. It is but a mere reflection of God the Father's love for His children. So in Christ, we are forgiven. We're given strength and power to overcome the evil one. We know Him personally who is from the beginning, who came in the flesh, and as children, we know the Father who's adopted us, the Father who loves us, disciplines us, cares for us, provides for us, is always present for us. I'm not sure what kind of earthly father you have or you did have, but know this, know this reality, that if you're in Christ, if you're walking in the light and obeying God's commands and growing in Christ's likeness and loving your neighbor, God is your perfect heavenly Father. Who we are determines not only what we do, but what we want. And this is where John goes next. Out of identity flows activity. John has been super encouraging in the first three verses, very complimentary, giving us pieces about our identity and truth that we can't forget. And now he transitions to a stronger encouragement, if you will, kind of up in your face, up in your grill about the implications of having such an identity. He's going to go after this. We're called to love God and not the things of this world. Verses 15 through 17. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Do not love the world or the things in this world. Now, he's not referring to God's created order, like I despise the stars and moon. He's not doing that. He's also not referring to the people in this world. John 3.16 would tell us otherwise, that God loves the people of this world and sent Jesus as a rescuer for our sin. Instead, this is the world, systems, uh, world system of values and appetites that the devil uses to pull us away from the things of God. The world, it stands in opposition to the things of God and the kingdom of God. See, the kingdom of, of the world says, well, you serve, serve yourself. The kingdom of God says, no, we serve God. The world's values say, live for today, and God's values say, live today in light of eternity. The world says, put yourself first, and God's word says, no, no, but put others before yourself. The world's values say that there's no absolute truth, and you and I are the final authority in how we live. But God's kingdom says there is absolute truth, and ultimately, God is the final authority in this life. Do not love the world or the things in this world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Jesus told us the greatest commandment was to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We can't do that. We can't love God supremely above all else and at the same time love the world and things in this world. Jesus told us in Matthew 6 that we can't serve two masters. In that case, he was talking about money, that you can't both love God and love money. Eventually, one is going to trump the other. One's going to supersede. One's going to lead. Will it be the love of God or the love of money? Or in this case, in 1 John, will it be the love of the Father or the love for the things in this world. We can't have one foot in, one foot out, and think we're good. These two things are completely opposite of one another. 
And 1 John is exposing this in us where in our hearts we, we want to both love God and follow God and claim that he's king of our hearts, but then turn around and still love the things of this world. These two loves are incompatible with one another. Matthew Henry said this, The more the love of the world prevails, the more the love of God decays. The more the love of the world prevails in our hearts, rules our hearts, leads our hearts, increases in our hearts, the more the love of God decays. If one increases, the other will decrease. The question we must consider this morning is what's ruling our hearts? What's increasing in your heart right now? Just ask yourself, what's increasing in your heart right now? Is it the love for God the Father? Or is it the love for the things of this world? John gives us in uh, verse 16 three descriptions of the things of this world, or three categories, if you will, about how we're tempted to love the world. He says, For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. Desires of the flesh, this is sensuality. The appetite in us that indulges in or seeks after sensual pleasure where we choose to uh, pursue a pattern of sin because it brings us momentary pleasure, it releases endorphins in us, it helps us to escape from hurt or pain in our lives. Desires of the flesh that basically I I want what I want and I want it now. I'm not going to deny myself. Again, who we will or who we are will determine what we want. Because my identity is in Christ, then I want to forsake or kill the desires of my flesh because that's not who I am anymore. It's not who I am. It's not who I am. It's what I used to be. It's what I used to be. It's what I used to want, but now I want something different. So the desire has been transformed. Not just the action, but the desire has been transformed. Desires of the eyes. This is materialism. It's a sin of coveting. We, we want stuff we don't have. You and I see something and we're thinking, I need that. If I had that, I would be complete. If I had that, I would be happy. Just name your thing. It's glittery. I'd like that. I'd like that in my home. Like the Willy Wonka story of Veruca Salt. I want it now. Daddy, I want it now. And those kind of things. That's just what our hearts do, right? You ever been in a store? And you're basically being Veruca Salt. You ever? I, I have. We have a pool in our backyard as a result. I want it now. <laughs> Payment plan? Yeah, let's do it. All right? You've been there too. You don't have to raise your hand. You don't have to confess like I do. I confess on iTunes. It works out great. When Jesus calls us to be content with what we have, the desires of the eyes says, no, no, I, we, don't be, we, don't, we don't want to be content until we have more. M-O-R-E, the elusive chase for more. And it will never be satisfied. I can tell you after chasing it in various ways over 18 years of marriage, it will never be satisfied. Again, who we will or who we are will determine what we want. Who we are will determine what we want because my identity is in Christ Therefore, I can forsake or kill the desires of my eyes that say I need more to be satisfied. I don't need more. I have all that I need in Christ. And I'm confident that as one of his children, he won't forsake me. He will meet my needs because I know him who's from the beginning. I know a good, gracious father who meets my needs. I know one who has forgiven me. I know one who is stronger than the evil one. Now, some of us might have gone through the first two and thought, well, shoot. I'm not tempted with those anymore. I can't imagine being tempted with those. I barely even remember a time. I can't even relate to you, Dave, about the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes. I mean, come on. And so for just, just, just for good measure, 
John wants to, the Holy Spirit inspires him to include the third one, which catches all of us, young, old, the pride of life. See, on this test, it's not enough to score two out of three and think we're perfectly, perfectly good. And we're never tempted to, to love the things of this world because then we fall into number three, the pride of life. The pride of life is that thirst for honor and applause. We want the glorious life, the one where people applaud us, where we are liked, hearted, and followed by many on social media, where people esteem us and elevate us as superior. Wow. We love when people, whether they verbally do it or not, we just, there's something in us that longs for people to go, wow, at our lives where people see our way of life, our knowledge, our achievements, our accolades, and as a result, we receive the applause. We don't want to sit on the bench. We don't want to be behind the scenes. We want to be the star. We want to be the one carried off on shoulders, baby. I can tell you from personal experience, pride is especially deceptive. It can rear its head even in the body of Christ, especially as you grow as a Christ follower. That's not an excuse not to grow by any stretch. Don't use that. It's a warning that as you grow, to not become a Pharisee that says, I smoked those first two and then fall to the third. As John says in verse 16, these three things are not from the Father but from the world. That's one reason we must continually turn from these things. The other reason John gives us is in verse 17. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. So we reject the love of the world because it's incompatible with the love for God. And it's passing away. This is like a preemptive warning for us prior to the end of our lives. Don't get to the end of your life having chased after these three things. Because they're passing away. They're worthless in the end. They don't bring salvation. They bring judgment instead. And if you hear my voice, if the Holy Spirit has convicted you of loving these things above loving God, then I challenge you to turn from them. Don't hear this warning from 1 John and, and, and think that and, and ignore that or find that your heart will be filled with regret years from now. The grace of God continually invites you to surrender. These things are passing the way. The, the one who does the will of God abides forever. Doing the will of God in this context is the opposite of what's involved in loving the world. The one whose identity is, is in Christ lives forever and enjoys the presence and peace of being with God and his people for all eternity. Living your daily life in light of eternity, John says, is worth it. It's worth it. Band, you want to come back up now? Um, listen, you, you can't hold on to something and still receive another thing. If I had a giant box, if I was holding on to another, just this huge refrigerator box type of thing, and you tried to put on another one, I'd have to let go of one to, to receive the other. If I'm going to receive the blessings of following God, then I can't still hold on to my old ways of living, my old ways of thinking, my old ways of wanting I need to put them down. I need to cast that aside. I need to surrender them, lay them before the cross. What do you need to let go of this morning? Desires of the flesh? Desires of the eyes? Pride of life? What do you need to let go of this morning? You and I today need to agree with God on His view of these things, and His view is that they're passing away, that they're worthless in the end, and, and that they're destructive. 
So we're going to turn from them. Instead, seek to love God and live for His purpose and mission. I can't run in two opposite directions at the exact same time. So instead, I need to fix my eyes on Christ. Run after Him and seek to live my life for His glory and mission. Who you are determines what you want. Who you are determines what you want. Do you know who you are this morning? If you're not in Christ, I pray you'd surrender your life to Him today. If you are, if you know Jesus, I pray you'd be reminded of your identity, both young and old, dear children who are loved, and you and I will be reminded again that who we are will determine what we want. It should radically shape and change what we want. Let's stand up and sing.
is our heart that is our prayer right there god that that our love for you would be supreme it would be above it would trump any other supposed love we have in this world god that we would uh, our affection for you our devotion to you our love for you would only increase and as that happens our love for the things of this world would decrease we would forsake them god we would cast them aside We would continually, moment by moment, day by day, year by year, make this conscious choice to keep turning back toward you, to keep trusting in you, to keep loving you supremely above all else. We thank you for your love for us, that that we don't love you out of our own capacity, but because of you first loved us. Thank you that your grace is sufficient, especially in our weakness. Thank you for your goodness and grace. Thank you for the work that you're doing in and through this local church. God, we give you all the glory. We don't want it to be about us. We want it to be about you. So may your kingdom advance, not only in our hearts, but in this community and in this world. We love you, Jesus. We love you so much. In your name, amen.